Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for a bunch of amazing things, but the best of all the amazing things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people, and we want you to know God. And so um, just a quick math equation will help you figure out putting your nose in the scriptures is your best opportunity to come to know him. Um, so we are in our fifth week now. Uh, all five of them, uh, to, uh, of walking through uh, an effort to walk through the, the book of Matthew together, right? Um, and so if you're new to church, new to the Bible, maybe, like, maybe all this stuff is just brand new to you, here's what you need to know real fast. Matthew uh, is one of four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You probably heard of them before, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They each tell the story of Jesus' life and work from different perspectives. They're all telling the same story, but they're highlighting different things because they have a mission, right? Uh, and they're all have, they all have a goal of convincing the specific audiences that they are writing to that Jesus is exactly who Jesus claims to be, which is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah and King that comes to take away the sin of the world, all right? And so it's a, it's a big task. It is. And Matthew attacks that goal but uh, toward, towards his specifically Jewish audience, he attacks that goal by leaning into both the, the long-awaited part of that and the king arriving to his kingdom part of that, right? Uh, he spends considerable time uh, and attention showing that Jesus not only fulfills a long list of like direct prophetic things, uh, correct things that, that, that the Jews believed and thought about the, the coming the Messiah. Not only does Matthew show that, that Jesus knocks out a lot of those correct things, but also shows that Jesus blows away all of the expectations and fulfills all of the things that the Father actually promised he would be, uh, even though the Jews and sometimes often you and me uh, are, are apt to overlook. All right? That he not only knocks out of the park everything that you expected him, but also makes all your expectations look way too small. I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this about yourself, but we have this nasty little habit, or at least I do, I'll be honest about that, of creating imaginary Messiah figures in our own slightly improved image. I'm the only one guy, right? All right. And so they always value what we already value, and they always despise what we already despise, just in a superhuman, slightly better than us sort of way. They're always excited to solve our greatest problems, and at least our perceived problems, without ever really messing with or disturbing our most cherished idols. But Matthew wants to show us the true, real deal, actually foretold Savior and King. And he does that by structuring his gospel account into a very specific pattern, right? And so the, the farther you zoom out from the book of Matthew, the easier this is to see. But he begins with a two-part introduction to the king, his origin story, right? Uh, but then he follows that by telling uh, the story of the king teaching and asserting his authority. And that's the main bo body of, uh, of the book of Matthew. It's the largest chunk, and it's broken into five sets of, of two parts. Right? And I know that's complicated, uh, but it'll make more sense the deeper and deeper we get into this letter. But then you got the origin story and you got the, the body of the, the account. But then after that, right, Matthew closes out his account by telling us the story of the king's grand act of self-sacrificing love to rescue his citizens, uh, the citizens of his kingdom, uh, and then finally ascend to the throne. 
right? That's the grand crescendo of the book of Matthew, right? And so uh, we're only a handful of weeks into this now, and we haven't gotten very far. Uh, but, the la- but last week, Matthew closed out the first half of that origin story. We, we call that part the birth narrative, all right? He begins to illustrate how the life of Jesus retells Israel's own story, but, but with a twist, right? Uh, and, that, and that twist is that Jesus succeeds in all of the places that Israel failed. That unburdened by personal sin, Jesus fulfills all of the covenantal expectations that were placed upon God's people. He's called out of Egypt, right? But he didn't turn away from the Father's covenant love like Israel turned away. Right? He's the deliverer with a capital D, rescued out of Israel's darkest tragedy. But that tragedy has hope on the other side of it, right? And he's raised up and he comes of age in obscurity and unknownness rather than constantly vying for notoriety and power like Israel always did. Matthew closes out the birth narrative by intentionally showcasing that Jesus, as the Messiah, both looked exactly like it was promised he would look and that he looked nothing at all like many wanted him to look. He does both. So we found out last week that while Matthew's aim was to call people to, to hear and to confidently believe that Jesus was indeed the Christ, Matthew's no mere hype man. Jesus is the Messiah, but you will either have him as he actually is, or you will not have him at all. But Matthew's not done introducing the king. The birth narrative is only part one. Jesus has grown up in obscurity, a small town that no one's ever paid attention to before Jesus came from there. And now it's time to introduce the king as an adult. Well, sort of. Before he gets to the king, Matthew's first going to introduce the king's herald. You've probably heard of him. Look at verse 1. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, so... Matthew adjusts the timeline here, all right? He does it in kind of a vague way. What what exactly does in those days mean? Um, Well, it carries over from the paragraph right before it, the days when Jesus was living in Nazareth, all right? Okay, but but how long was that, right? Like, that sounds kind of like a long time, but that's a big window. Matthew doesn't tell us how long. But he does connect this next part of the story to a vague time period uh, of, of this vague time period. He connects it to an individual that his Jewish audience was very, very, very familiar with. All right? John the Baptist. It's from Luke's account that we get an estimation for the years involved in what's going on here. Uh, in Luke chapter 3, uh, he says that Jesus was, quote, about 30 years of age when he began his public ministry. But you, Luke uses the word about. And it's intentionally imprecise, and, and so we don't know exactly how old Jesus was when he started his public ministry. Luke, Luke also tells us that it was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, and so for all the history nerds in the room, depending on exactly when you start counting, and there's a couple of really, really smart options for when to start counting, but that gives us a window between 27 and 30 AD that Jesus probably started his public ministry. And so Matthew has jumped forward pretty considerably far in the timeline, in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 years. Everybody's grown up now. But again, his Jewish audience didn't need him to spell that out because, well, they understand the context. And why do they understand the context? Because they remember John. They know John. That The dots are already connected for them. So who was John the Baptist? Well, 
as the text says, John was a man preaching in the wilderness. And we need to read into that all that we would naturally read into that. The wilderness was the place outside of and separated away from the recognized, civilized area. And if you considered yourself to be a civilized kind of person, then you were very careful not to spend uh, time out in the wilderness unless you had to, unless you were traveling from one civilized place to the other civilized place. The wilderness was full of robbers and vagabonds and people intentionally trying to distance themselves from said civilization. So think of it like Florida, all right? (laughs) We're told that John specifically posted up in the wilderness of, Je- uh, of Judea. So where is that? Well, we can actually point to it on a map, all right? And so I've got a map for you. Uh, Mr. Paul, can I see our map? There's a map, all right? So this is zoomed way into kind of the central portion of Judea. You see the dot that says Jerusalem on the left. You see the body of water on the right. That's the Dead Sea. That's the northern shore of the Dead Sea. You got the Jordan River flowing up uh, from north to south. The Sea of Galilee is up above the picture, all those kinds of things. And if you're really a nerd, you'll see a, a little city called Qumran on the edge of the Dead Sea, and you can go whatever. All right, so... All the non-nerds are like, what is he talking about? All right. so, I'm going to have to explain it to you later. I don't have time. All right. so, so we're looking at the northern shore of the Dead Sea. And so the wilderness of Judea all right, stretches between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea there. You see it kind of written on the map if you've got good eyes. If you're in the back and in one of our older saints, it's in the middle. All right, so, um, and it kind of stretches around the, the northern coast of the Dead Sea. And so we're talking about a region, if, you, if you're measuring directly from Jerusalem, we're talking about a region that starts three to four miles outside the city, and it stretches from there to measuring all the way to the Jordan on the northern shore, maybe 15 or 16 miles. All right, and so it's kind of a larger little region there. Uh, Israel's not a big place. You can, you can cover a lot of ground there in a short amount of time, but um, it's, it's a larger region for that area. And so, so John is hanging out in the uncivilized area, just a stone's throw away, but away from but still well within reach of the epicenter of Jewish leadership and worship. Why? What's he doing? Well, it's possible. It's possible that John's nickname, uh, it's possible for his nickname to give people a wrong impression of what he spent all of his time doing. Um, Yes, he baptized people. It's happening in this story. It's going to happen in the next one. But more importantly, John is a preacher of repentance. A get-in-your-face-about-it, call-down-the-fire-and-the-brimstone kind of preacher. He called people to turn away from their sin and to, to distance themselves from it and never, ever, ever return to it. And in that decisive action to finally make themselves right before the Lord. And John used baptism as a symbolic picture of that act. The practice of baptism was around in those days. It wasn't incredibly widespread, but they had it. All right? But even in Jesus' day, before he, he commanded it as this kind of initiating ordinance for the church, baptism was already seen in those days as kind of a, a spiritual action that you took part in to, to kind of signify a new life of obedience and a new life of righteousness before God, right? And so as John preached, those who responded to his call to repentance, they would come forward and be baptized by him as an external picture of what was supposedly an internal decision. All right? The water didn't actually wash anyone clean. 
but it did display a posture of submitting yourself to righteousness and submitting yourself to pursuing God's will. And, and that understanding is going to be super important next week when we get to our text for then, but we'll get to that when we need to get to that. All right, so John is posted up in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem. All right, okay. The, the city that, that the prophets of, old, of the Old Testament always sought out. Like, if you're going to be a prophet to God's people, you got to go to Jerusalem, right? But John is hanging out on the outskirts of Jerusalem. The city that the kings and the high priests kind of claimed as their personal stronghold. And instead of going into the city, John calls the city to come out to him. And man, come out they did. We're going to see in a second that he developed a substantial buzz. Crowds began to flock to him. For some, for some in that crowd, it was a genuine response to the call to repentance. I believe that was actually happening. And for many others, it was the spectacle. I'm certain that that happened. But John was intentionally making a scene. Why? Because the herald of the, of the king understood his work. His job was to make a people prepared for the coming of the Lord. And that's confirmed by the specific reasoning buried in John's call to repentance. Did you see what it says? Why should they repent? He says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what does that mean? Well, the simplest way I know how to say it is to say that the rule and reign of God has arrived. It's arrived. Kingdom of heaven is a term that's only used in the book of Matthew. Um, Telling these same stories, though, Mark and Luke uh, use a different phrase. They use the kingdom of God. Right? And there have been people throughout church history who have attempted, I think, to ascribe a slight nuance of definitions between those two things. Uh, but most commentators just think that they're synonymous terms. Uh, there, there's a couple of times in the book of Matthew where Jesus uses both the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And he seems to use them interchangeably. All right. Um, and so what exactly is the kingdom of God slash the kingdom of heaven? Well, we tend to think of kingdoms in terms of like nation states, right? That's, that's where our minds in the West automatically go. We think of specific borders and maybe even a palace. We think of the location where the king lives and everyone inside of that, those borders, everyone inside of that nation state are the king's subjects, right? And based on the way that a lot of people in, you know, typically misunderstood Jesus' messianic to-do list, it's quite possible that that's exactly how a lot of people in Matthew's day would have naturally heard it. They were thinking kings with borders and palaces. An announcement that the Messiah was here and that it was time to overthrow Rome and or all the bad guys making up the current slate of Jewish aristocratic leadership elites. Right? Like, like, like they would have heard that and gone, yeah, let's do it. But that's not the only way to describe a kingdom. A kingdom is also a place where a king reigns. And because Matthew makes such a steady habit of showing that Jesus is the counterintuitive Messiah, it's not hard to believe that he's got something else in mind in view here as well. What if? What if the Messiah who is far more than you ever expected has a kingdom that looks nothing at all like your initial expectations? And that idea is helped out by the phrase at hand. What does at hand mean? Well, it means that it's near to you. If you look up the definition of at hand in a dictionary, you'll find a couple of possible definitions. Uh, one is that something has almost arrived. It's like you're, you're just at the very cusp of it beginning, right? All right uh, the second option uh, for a definition is that something is right within your reach. It's there for you to grab, right? 
I liked the second option better uh, than the first one, but both of those options work for Matthew's cause. Neither one of those affects how Matthew is read. Now, John's not talking about some far-off kingdom that we can only hope to maybe come to fruition one day. It's out there. It's coming. Get yourself ready. It'll be here one of these days. No, that's not what's going on at all. Not even close. All right, everyone, let's, let's go ahead and clean ourselves up because, you know, we'll never know when the king will arrive. No, he says, hurry up and get right with the Lord because he's here. He's here right now. The kingdom is here. It's right in front of you. If we go with my preferred definition, you can grab it already. But maybe you struggle. I don't know. Maybe you struggle to take the word of some wild-eyed firebrand hanging out in the woods outside of Jerusalem. I think a lot of people would struggle with that. Well, that's okay, because Matthew's got some more Old Testament prophets he wants to point you to. Look at verse 3. Talking about John, Matthew says this. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All right, so Matthew points uh, to, to John and says that the king's herald was as foretold as the king was. The, the king's herald was also promised to come. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah, and he tells us something about John's appearance and wardrobe that Matthew's Jewish audience would have never missed. Not even a little bit. Uh, Start with the Isaiah part. It's a quotation directly from Isaiah 40, verse 3. So so what what would a highly biblically literate audience assume when Matthew quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3? Well, if you're familiar with Isaiah and the structure that it's written in, something that his audience certainly would have been, then you might know that Isaiah was written a couple hundred years before the Babylonian exile, speaking about the coming Babylonian exile. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is Isaiah explaining God's case for why exile must happen. Israel and Judah simply will not repent of their sin. But then a turn happens in chapter 40. And it is a massive turn. Starting in chapter 40 of Isaiah and going on for the next 15 chapters, Isaiah just goes off on telling God's people that after the righteous judgment of God upon their sin, God will return them once again out of that exile, that God will come to his own people, that he will shepherd them in gentleness and faithfulness forever, and that they will sing to the Lord a new song and stuff like that that you've probably heard of before, and that all other kingdoms will fall away. Hey, anybody think that might maybe, I don't know, that might have something to do with the coming of Jesus? A massive chunk of what we call Old Testament messianic prophecy comes from the 15 chapters of Isaiah that we're talking about right now. Like a big old chunk of it. And it's introduced in Isaiah 40 verse 3 with a voice crying in the wilderness. Matthew says, hey, this John, Isaiah's talking about him. He's the voice. But John the Baptist doesn't simply do the work of a prophet. He also dresses like them. Hold your finger in Matthew and turn back to 2 Kings chapter 1 real, real fast. We'll come back to Matthew. 
Second Kings chapter one. So King Ahaziah, all right, fun guy. Uh, he's he's one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history, and he sends some messengers to another pagan nation because he doesn't want to deal with the prophets of his own nation. He wants to get uh, a prophetic word from some from another pagan group uh, about some things that are going on in the kingdom. He's been hurt. He's he's got all kinds of questions, and he sends some messengers to another nation, a pagan nation, to get word from them instead of ta- consulting the prophets of his own land. All right, and his messengers get stopped and turned around on their way. There by a crazy looking guy out in the wilderness that won't let them pass on the road. All right, and so they come back to the king, and this is what that exchange looks like in verse 5. 2 Kings 1, verse 5. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, Well, there came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? Verse 8, they answered him, he wore a garment of hair and with a belt of leather about his waist. And the king said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. <laughs> right, so back to Matthew. Matthew tells us what John is wearing, but it's not because he's simply an awkward character in the story. John's not just you know, an eccentric side character on a, on a more noble tale. No, his clothes are on purpose. They're intentional. And they are meant to raise the question in Matthew's readers. Namely, is God fulfilling a promise through John? Because in addition to a single quote from Isaiah about a messenger preparing the way of the Lord, there are a couple of other prophets that also have something to say about this coming messenger. But their prophecies have a name attached to them. A couple hundred years after Elijah died... The prophet Malachi said this in verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So biblically literate Jews knew, they knew that the long-awaited Messiah had an equally long-awaited forerunner. In fact, they expected to see the forerunner first. And that forerunner would either be an actual reincarnation of the prophet Elijah or at the very minimum, another prophet who came in the same spirit as him. And Matthew goes, hey, you remember what John liked to wear in those days? Awfully Elijah liked that get up. And you can see how both the message and the messenger played a massive role in creating the buzz outside of Jerusalem. We're told in verse 5 that crowds were coming to him from Jerusalem and all Judea in order to be baptized. Genuine repentance and spectacle. Look at verse 7 though. But when he, John, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, I'm going to call time out right there. I know it's in the middle of a sentence, but there's a lot going on here. All right, so we have our first introduction to a couple of groups that will play an outsized role in the rest of the book of Matthew. All right? And so uh, we need to spend just a moment explaining uh, who they actually are. And so we've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the best way I know to explain who the Pharisees and the Sadducees are is to call them religiously minded political parties. Right? Uh, there, there's nuance there. There's some things that don't exactly line up. But the best 
analog I can give you, religiously minded political parties, groups of individuals that aligned with each other, aligned themselves with each other over the various debated topics of the culture around them. And so uh, they're, they're not the only two parties involved, uh, there's, and there's even gradation within those two groups. All right? You can have various levels of that. But as categories, Pharisees and Sadducees are the two main ones that we need to understand for understanding Matthew well. And there, there was a class structure kind of buried in there that was present. Uh, the Sadducees were kind of seen as, as the elites, a little bit of an aristocratic element. Right? Uh, they, they were made up mostly of the priestly class and those who had some money in town. All right? The Sadducees were that group. The Pharisees, however, they were more the common man group. All right? uh, but they also held all of the teaching roles. And the scribal jobs. And so they were kind of the experts in the word. Uh, but once you got past that weird class divide, they, were really, uh, they really divided themselves over two kind of main columns of, uh, of, of disagreement. Right? One, one was the authority of the oral law. Right? The authority of the oral law and major sections of what we consider to be the Old Testament as well. Uh, you had the Torah, so the first five books of the Bible or the Pentateuch, whatever you prefer to call them. Uh, the first five books of the Bible, and every Jew is supposed to at least you know, accept that, consider them authoritative, listen to them, obey them, all those things. But then after the Torah, you had the prophets and the writings. All right? And so it made up the, what's called the Tanakh. All right? And so that's your fancy word for the day, Tanakh. All right? And so you got the Torah, the prophets, and the, the writings. All right? And so... Um, but it's widely believed that some, and maybe even most, of the Sadducees rejected the prophets and the writings. They only clung to the Torah. Saw everything else as corrupt and not from God. Which caused them to reject a large number of doctrinal ideas that flow out of the prophets and the writings. Things like the resurrection of the dead. Because the Torah never really speaks to that. Or at least they didn't think so. And some of you can probably hear a conversation that Jesus had one time with some Sadducees about resurrection. Well, there's a reason. It's because they rejected it. But it's reductionistic to say, uh, it's reductionistic to say that the Sadducees rejected the Bible and the Pharisees honored it. Because in addition to the Torah and the prophets and the writings, the, Sa- the Pharisees also clung to something called the oral law. Right? The oral law was a collection of teachings from rabbis about the Torah, the prophets, and the writings that interpreted and supposedly clarified uh, things for the Jewish people. And the Pharisees loved the oral law. And they were all about the oral law. They built out their lives trying to chase holiness through the oral law. Because if they could fulfill the oral law, then that means, therefore, that they're fulfilling the rest of everything else, right? And they held it up in pretty much the same regard as the rest of the Old Testament. And so the Sadducees could realistically and legitimately come back and argue and say, you're following the teachings of man, not of God. And so each group would loft claims of heresy and unrighteousness at each other, right? That's not how politics works today. They didn't like each other at all. They hated each other. The second main column of disagreement is how they should respond to and interact with Rome. Um, the Sadducees were very, very Hellenized, culturally speaking. Uh, they held positions of power and regularly interacted uh, with Rome in one way or another. Uh, it was always in their best interest to, uh, for them to have a positive working relationship with Rome. Uh, the Pharisees, on the other hand, uh, they were the commoner types. You know, they, they, they represented the oppressed working man on their side. 
And so it was really, really easy to kind of give your stump speech and work up the crowd into a frenzy about why Rome are the worst people ever. And so if Jews were going to be faithful to God, they shouldn't pay their taxes or ever bend the knee to Caesar. And some of you can probably hear some other conversations that Jesus had with some Pharisees in that regard. Now, we'll get to some more specific things about their beliefs and their assumptions and how that interacted with Jesus and his teachings as we get deeper and deeper and deeper into the book of Matthew. Uh, But what we need to lock in on right now is this, all right? John is drawing a massive crowd, an absolutely massive crowd. He's publicly calling for repentance outside of Jerusalem. And those who are actively holding positions of power and those who are actively steeped in all of the current debates of the day, all all the hot button topics, they are all coming out to see him as well. And so what do you think the wild-eyed firebrand out in the woods coming in the spirit of Elijah is going to say to those guys when they show up to his baptism? Well, the back half of verse 7 gives us our answer. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, comma, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. All right, such a softy that John the Baptist. He calls them a brood of vipers, an angry, tangled knot of poisonous snakes. Have a good day, guys. He's staring at the people who are responsible for the biblical teaching and devotional practice of God's covenant people. People who style themselves as the elites and people who style themselves as the everyman. And he is calling both of them out in front of a giant crowd of people. And we don't know from this text, we don't know whether these guys have shown up because you know, they're interested in personal righteousness or if they were there for the spectacle of it all. It, it could simply be that part of church leadership sometimes means you know, scoping out what else is going on in your community. And they just needed to be in the know. I don't know. But whatever their reasoning, church, whatever their reasoning, John ain't playing games. He's not there to give them the spectacle. The herald knows exactly who is most likely to stand in the way of the rightful king ascending to his throne. There's only one pathway into citizenship in this kingdom. It's repentance. And prior service in the previous administration does not give you a head start. In fact, it might just make it harder. And so in verse 8, John says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Meaning, the proof that repentance is true in you is what your life is producing. You can measure repentance because it has an effect on you. Forget about having the right answers or the the right methods. Forget about being aligned with the correct side of a political or theological debate. It's not a matter of elevating your public piety just a little bit. No, John says that the king is coming and the only way that you end up on the inside of his kingdom as opposed to the outside of his kingdom is by being rightly related to the king through true, genuine repentance. And the natural rebuttal Natural rebuttal in the back of the Jewish mind is to go, well, 
well, what about that promise that God made to Abraham and his descendants? Right? Did God not say that Abraham's family would be blessed forever? Because, man, I could trace my lineage all the way back. I got Abrahamic blood coursing through these veins. And the wild-eyed prophet answers that question before they can even ask it. Don't you know? Don't you know that God can make children for Abraham out of the stones on the ground? Now, Matthew's written in Greek. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's what John is speaking. He could be speaking Greek, but everybody in that crowd would have known Greek, and they would have known Hebrew, and they would have known Aramaic, and they would have had no problem at all switching back and forth between the three. And speaking directly to Jewish leaders, Hebrew is most assuredly something that they at least intimately knew. Whether John is speaking to them in, in, in Hebrew or not, we don't know. But the Hebrew words for sun and stone are only one letter apart. Sun is ben, stone is eben. So John seems, whether he's speaking it directly or he's just kind of lofting it out there for really smart people to grab a hold of, John seems to be making an intentional play on words here. If the, if the physical ben are, are not fit for the kingdom, God's just going to raise up the eben. He's not, he's not burdened by that. If those who ought to be rightly related to God refuse to come to him, then God's not going to be undone in raising up a lineage for Abraham by some other means. And so John gives one final warning here. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, is that fruit of repentance is cut down. So the obvious necessary question is, how do we come to true repentance then? Because I, I don't want the false kind. That doesn't sound like it works. If the outward water of baptism cannot actually wash away our sin, how can we wash, be washed clean internally? And so verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. All right, so there's a lot in there. I get that. But John's just said a couple of different things. All right? uh, some of it's scary. Some of it breathes life into weary, sin-sick souls. The wild-eyed herald points beyond himself into the glory of his king. He says, listen guys, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. And so even the most menial of tasks is still loftier than John's station, and he knows it. But the king is not merely coming to observe. No, he says he's coming to do the work himself. And he will separate out those that belong to him and those who do not belong to him. And he will baptize you, immerse you, John says, not in water as some picture of, of a truer reality, but in the Spirit of God and in fire. And again, Old Testament literacy is so incredibly important for rightly understanding the book of Matthew. Because that imagery is not new. It comes from Isaiah 4. I think it'll be up on the screen. 
Isaiah 4, verse 2 says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left uh, in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, and everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke of the shi- and the shining of the flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. All right, so what's the quick version of what Isaiah is saying there? He's saying that even as God rightly judges the wicked in their sin, he calls some of the sinful back to himself. And he washes them clean. And he sets their feet on solid ground. And he makes himself near to them. And his glory shine around them. And in his good presence and by his gracious hand, through no merit of their own, but for the glory of his own name, sinners are saved. That's what it says. That God is saving a people for himself. Not because they've earned it. Because he's called them to himself. Do you hear the call of the Lord this morning? Whether through an Old Testament prophet or a wild-eyed herald or a mediocre preacher, the call has always and will always be the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is right here within your reach. Grab it. We're not playing games here. This has nothing to do with right answers or right methods. There is no eternal value in being correctly aligned with the right side of a political debate or theological issue. The king has no interest in you slightly elevating your public piety. He ain't interested. The only way you end up being on the inside of his kingdom instead of on the outside of his kingdom is by being rightly related to the king through true, genuine repentance. You can do that today. You can do that today. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can change that. The, the Bible teaches that because of our sin, that all people by default are separated relationally from God, that we are all owed the just and right punishment for that sin. The Bible calls that punishment death. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy, that he loves us with a great love, that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive through the grace of Christ. The eternal Son of God, Messiah and King, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that you and I are not capable of living. He died on a cross as a, as a, as a payment for our sin in full. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the King who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to grab a hold of his kingdom through repentance. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus. I'd love to be helpful to you. We can talk. In a second, I'm going to pray and we'll play another song. And It's time that we set aside each week to give people you know, space to, to do something with that. But what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? How do we, how do we respond? What does our response look like? A famous guy named Martin Luther once said that the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. What did did he mean by that? He meant that treating these spiritual conditions that get you into the kingdom of God as nothing more than tasks on a list to check off is to miss their point entirely. Repentance is not something you just handle and then file away. It's, as John the Baptist once said, it produces a certain kind of recognizable fruit. 
what does that fruit actually look like? Right? I think it looks like a true turning away from sin. I think it looks like a right accounting of what that sin costs you and a new revulsion towards uh, what it affects upon you. You want nothing more to do with it. You actively guard yourself from it in the future. And don't, don't mishear me. Fruit sometimes takes a while to grow. It doesn't just show up overnight, but in, even immature fruit looks different than no fruit. Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Yes or no? And if not, what needs to change? Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. But for some, it's to, to take the step to finally join our, our church family. Uh, I'd love to sit down and talk with you about what that looks like and what those next steps are. For maybe for others, it's time to, to be obedient to Jesus' uh, command to be baptized. Like I said a moment ago, bap- baptism doesn't save someone. The water doesn't do anything, but it's an act of public testimony of what God has done for you. Let, let's talk. Maybe that's your next step. Or maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's by, uh, maybe it's the time to finally say yes to some calling that God has placed on you to take the gospel somewhere far away from here. And you need to make that public this morning. I'd love to help you sit down and figure out what those next steps are for you. But whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Matthew. you make our repentance true? Would we hear the call sincerely? For those in here who know you, would you confirm us within yourself? Not not because we've done the right things or had the right beliefs or aligned ourselves with the right groups, but because we aligned ourselves with the King. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them right now? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you call people into your kingdom today? Whether through an Old Testament prophet or a firebrand out in the woods or a mediocre preacher. Use your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.